Hey, Joel here. It's Dining Around Across the Nation and Around the World Food, Wine, and Travel. As you know, I love to try new things and experiment with things that, uh, you know, we don't always get to have a handle on. But the reality is this this paying homage to to houses, to companies, to family businesses that are really set in stone when it comes to different areas of the world is something that is ultimately important. I mean, have you ever stood there and, and looked at a shelf and said, I would really like to purchase port for my family, but I'm not exactly sure which port to get and what the story is behind it? Well, we're fortunate today to have, I'm fortunate to have a gentleman in front of me, and you're fortunate to hear about it, uh, Rupert Simmington. He is one of the family from the Simmington, Simmington family. They are port producers. Rupert, thank you for being with us today. I appreciate it. Hi, Joel. Uh, great to talk to you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to tell you a bit about my family. My, my great-grandfather emigrated from Scotland in 1882 to Portugal. Um, so he was probably one of the original European um, citizens, which mm. are now about to be... Uh, of Portugal. Of Portugal. Right. Um, about to be thrown into uh, disrepute by Brexit. <laughs> but, um, no, he, he um, married a half-Portuguese lady and settled down uh, in Portugal. Uh, he came out aged 18, mm -hmm. became... Um, he came out to work for the rag trade, the textile business. Um, he soon decided that the, uh, the wine side um, of, of the business in northern Portugal... Uh, was a lot more attractive than the uh, the textile business. It would be. It would be. And um, so he uh, he jumped over and um, joined uh, a company called Warren Company, which was part of a very noble tradition that had been going on since uh, 1670. Wow. So uh, the Warren Company in 1670, is this the sort of the beginning of the port industry or were they the pioneers of the port industry or is this something else? I think um, it's fair to say at the end of the 17th century, um, the two or three firms that were founded then are the, probably the oldest okay. port shippers. And port has long been associated with a, a trade between England and Portugal. It was concrete, uh, cemented by a, um, uh, an alliance, a formal alliance between Britain and Portugal in 1703. Mm -hmm. And that enabled port to, to go on to become probably the most popular wine not only in Britain, but in the world mm -hmm. um, for about 200 years after that. Was was port itself, was it an, an indication then of where it was from in addition? Like, could people make port in other places of the world? Port took its name from the city of Oporto, which is uh, an Atlantic city. It's now the second largest city in Portugal. And um, the difference between port and wines from Spain and, and, and France and Germany, who, which were popular at the time, it was further away uh, from Britain mm -hmm. so people had to add a little bit of brandy to the wine prior to shipment to help preserve it and help it travel and that gave rise to uh, a popular trend uh, of red fortified wines mm -hmm. which went on to become I say you know world leaders uh, mm -hmm. in, in consumption. Would that allow the port then to to age longer in theory? Absolutely um, you know alcohol acts as a preservative and because originally the wine the brandy was added to help the wine travel and not spoil. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you brought wine from France, it was only probably a day's sailing across to the UK and it would be consumed relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. If you if you brought wine from the heartlands of Portugal down to the ocean, transshipped it onto boats, it could take maybe up to two, three weeks to get it to the market, by which time often it had, had spoiled. It could be, um, it could re-ferment, it could uh, um, end up being less enjoyable than, you know, but the, the, the result was almost like the, the gold rush. Mm -hmm. uh, merchants poured in from the, you know, the beginning of the 18th century 
uh, into the uh, city of Oporto. They set up um, houses bearing their own names, names like um, uh, Sanderman, Taylor's, uh, Graham's, Dow's, Wars. But these are names that we know these days, nowadays. Absolutely, and, th and those names have survived. The families themselves largely have died out. Mm -hmm. Um, my family have been there since 1882, but we're, we're considered relative newcomers in the port trade. And obviously the port trade has changed over the years. There aren't, um, there are fewer companies, there have been amalgamations. But my family are, I think, one of the last um, families with British roots. Mm -hmm. uh, I was born in Portugal, my father was born in Portugal, my grandfather was born in Portugal, but um, I'm still considered by the Portuguese as being British. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's part of, uh, we do maintain our Britishness, it's part of the DNA of port. You know, right. port has always been a, the Englishman's wine. Right, and and, and in, mm -hmm. since the beginning, it's been favored uh, of people from, from England, uh, certainly. I mean, I know that, that over time, port has really taken hold in the United States and in other parts of the world, but that would have been the sort of number one market at the time, certainly, and as things progress. I want to ask you, and we were able to fortunately talk a little bit before um, before I interviewed you now, but I want to talk a little bit about how port itself has changed, the production of port has changed, because if your family is now fourth generation, obviously that's gone on, and you made a comment earlier about the first ports being bottled uh, in Portugal and also the production of the 1970. Can you give us a little more information about that because so that other people will know? Do you know what I'm asking you? So port in its early days, like like most wines, was shipped in barrels and it was it was bottled really at your local inn. You know, they would buy a barrel and then they would bottle it into into you know in a jug or something for you, just something to take take home. Um, you know, easily uh, fits in the back of your cart. Um, but um, as as the wine trade evolved, uh, the shipping of wine in bottle is a relatively recent phenomenon. Port most port was bottled um, at in the markets where it was consumed um, as late as 1970. Um, since 1970, uh, we have um, bottled more and more port, mm -hmm. and and from about 1986, we bottled it exclusively. Sorry, 1996 bottled it exclusively in Portugal. Okay. Um, so, but the way that the wine making has evolved, um, we used to make wine the Roman way, um, which was big, shallow, uh, granite tanks. People would literally get in and stomp the grapes on foot by foot, and um, and then they would, uh, you know, run the wine off into barrel, add the fortifying spirit. We have obviously refined that um, from the uh, the seventies. Uh, the Douro got electricity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, this is the <laughs> 1970s. It's find maybe hard for some of your listeners to, mm -hmm. to realize that, you know, there are areas of Europe that had no electricity until 1970. Well, seeing as much of my audience listens on podcast, I think that's hysterical. Yeah. So, so we, you know, we... That's we, awful to say. No, I just, it's fascinating. It's it, hysterical it, it, it is the wrong word. I apologize. Point. I mean, that, that is, you know, in my lifetime, um, people, you know, were living in the dark. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, Obviously, as as technology arrived, um, power, um, we have adapted our winemaking methods, um, and we're now making wine pretty much the same way as you'd see it being made um, in in most of the major wine regions of the world. Mm -hmm. um, we have, as a nod to our past, developed uh, a machine which replicates the human foot treading. We call it the automatic lagar, and that's a machine where. Um, a, a hydraulic uh, row of feet 
uh, complete with silicon toes. They, they don't uh, look. Do they look like feet? They don't look too much like feet. Okay. But, but that these uh, these uh, stomp the grapes mm-hmm. uh, in a, in a in a row. They go backwards and forwards. The great advantage is they don't uh, they don't get drunk. They don't fall down and they don't uh, <laughs> fight with their neighbors. Um, so um, huge technical progression. But but like everything, you know, we we have got better and more scientific um, about what we do to make sure that we have fewer mistakes without making the wine we, we like the wine still to be as natural as possible we don't add preservatives we don't um if you have a bottle of vintage port it's got nothing in it literally that um is is not what nature not nature made or nature gave well, thank you and let's talk about this this idea of vintage ports and then vintage ports and your your own with your companies with grams with dows with kimta dusuvio uh, and Coburn's the idea of a vintage port because it's not something that um, that I ever really spent much time on, other than saying, "Oh, look, there is a vintage port. I will buy it." So, so most port that you'll find out on the shelf, I mean, maybe ninety-five percent of all port that's made is what we call port from the wood. The the, the port is made; it's fortified at the harvest. We then move it downriver to the uh, to the ocean, uh, about sixty-mile journey down to the ocean, where we have our maturation lodges uh, these are big warehouses where we store the wine in barrels for two three five ten years depending on how long we want to wow we then bottle it ready for drinking and we ship it to your you know your store for you to buy um, the other tiny proportion of port five percent maybe we treat it differently we bottle it uh, not when it's ready to drink but when it's very very young so we bottle it at about 18 months old. This is what we call vintage port. We bottle it without any fining, without any filtration. What goes into the uh, bottle is the pure wine. And we allow, we put a cork in, exactly like any bottle of wine you buy, a natural cork. And then the wine sits in the bottle. We lay it down in what we call a bin. Mm-hmm. And it sits in the dark for 10, 15, 20 years, maturing until we deem it ready and, and wine that matures in a bottle sees no oxygen, sees no air. So we have a very different evolution. Um, and Joel and I tasted today some uh, 1970 Grahams. That <laughs> has been, that was bottled in 1972. Um, I was alive, I'm not sure if Joel was alive no. back then. Um, and it's been sitting in our cellars pretty much undisturbed for 45 years and you so you bottled it in 72 mm-hmm. the vintage was 1970 when was that then released so we originally released part of it in about 1975 okay and um different customers require some customers like to buy the bottles and and mature them in their own cellars some customers like to buy it from the winery when it's already ready to drink mm-hmm. so 45 years later, we are selling the last few bottles of Graham 70. That's amazing. Um, a wine that my dad made, you know, back in 1970. Well, and if you know anybody who was born in 1970, it would be a really amazing, not only gift, but gift to experience with them. Well, Vintage Port is a wine that, you know, it's known for its long ageability. Um, there are probably very few other wines that we know in the wine world that age as well as Vintage Port. And it's a combination of um, the fact that it's a fortified wine, we boost the uh, the alcohol up by about five five percent to about nineteen percent alcohol. The the natural sugar of the grape is preserved by the addition of alcohol, so we have about it's about fifty percent natural grape sugar and fifty percent um, fermented alcohol. 
um and then the other thing is that the, just the concentration and tannic tannic structure the, the the place that we make wine is probably the place where the most concentrated grape must is made in the world i mean that's no exaggeration mm -hmm. it's a semi-desert we don't irrigate we're getting tiny yields uh, yield means the number of the, the, the number of pounds of grapes that you get per vine and typically in the duro where i make uh, where we make our wine uh, we're getting in our best regions uh, something about a fifth of what you'd expect in wow. Bordeaux or Napa Valley. So, so very low yield, very high concentration. Exactly. Absolutely. And uh, it's my understanding or my, I would expect that the varietals themselves, because we tasted a few ports that were, uh, that were the darkest plum prune, beautiful, uh, not prune, but beautiful color, mm. but so dense that you can't see through them. I mean, the varietals themselves that would that would impart that kind of denseness. Yes? Exactly. So, so the varietals we have are not ones that most U.S. consumers um, are particularly, you know, familiar with. Um, but we work with three or four varietals that have basically these are the descendants of varietals brought to the region by the Romans back in the. Uh, second century ad wow um so and they have hybridized they have adapted to the conditions they're used to getting very little water so they put their roots very very deep uh to find water uh and they produce very little fruit if they produce too much fruit they'd risk not having enough water coming up to, to keep that fruit alive so right. they they basically they've adapted those grapes have very thick skins um, and, and, and there's a very small production, very few tons coming off per every acre. So, and the result is, as, as, as you said, a, a wine which is when you, if you can actually manage to get the color out of it, which is hard, <laughs> the thicker the skin is where all the color and the flavor of a grape is, you need a very sort of powerful uh, fermentation to be able to get that color out of the skins. Mm -hmm. And we do that um, now by our automatic treading machines. Right. Um, but but if you do manage to get it out, what you end up is a sort of an inky essence of of all that's best about, you know, old fashioned mm -hmm. um, European grapes. It's a real sort of dense, dark, um, syrupy almost uh, must. And at the end of the day, you get to taste what's from the dirt. All of that together in one expression. Exactly. I mean, it's complex and delicious. I have to add, it doesn't taste like dirt. But no, it, no, no, it, it, it's from it's, it's <laughs> from it's, the it's, it's the pure earthiness of that very exclusive region the mineral and everything about it listen rupert before i lose you to time i i, I know that your family company simmington and you can visit simmington s y m i n g t o n dot com i'll pop that up on diningaround.com and i'll tweet it out as well and instagram it but you have grams and dows and uh quinta de, de, de vesuvio my apologies i've totally screwed up your name uh but coburn's i understand is the the latest addition to your family portfolio uh, when do did your family acquire Coburn's and what is so special about it that we should know? Well, Coburn's was, uh, when I was a kid, was one of the, the big powerful houses in, in, the, in the industry. They, were, uh, they, they had the biggest uh, export sales to the important markets like the UK and US. And um, my, father, my, my family was, uh, was lucky enough to have the opportunity um, to, to buy the vineyards, not the brand itself, in 2006. Um, the Beam Group um, took over uh, Coburn's, the brand from um, which had been previously owned by Allied de Mec, very famous um, original British brewery that merged with a Spanish uh, brandy company. Um, anyway, long long story short, we we ended up then buying the brand itself 
in 2010, so four years after we bought the vineyards, we were supplying wine in bottle under the Coburn's brand to the Beam Group, and they gave us the opportunity. They, they, um, you know, they're very, very powerful company in their own right, or were. Um, they, they uh, um, were concentrating much more on bourbon and and uh, other uh, strategic uh, products. So we had the opportunity to to buy for a not an inconsiderable sum of money this legendary port brand. Mm-hmm. And I think this return to family ownership, Coburn had been a family port company until the 1950s. We've tried to bring back and, and, and give a personality to the wines that we felt that perhaps they, they'd been very successful under multinational ownership. Mm-hmm. But um, we're very proud now to be kind of the custodians of this brand for another another hundred years. Well, and I think that what, what I look for, and I know what people who I know look for is not only the highest quality possible, but it's always nice to have a story attached to it. When you see something and say, oh, there's a family attached to this, and you know that there are people who work the earth, and there are people who show up and they care about what's going on. And so I always feel really good about serving it to friends and family, because Mm -hmm. whatever it is, if you can sort of recognize that connection, I don't know, you feel kind of a part of it. So Uh, thank you. I completely agree. And and my family, you know, one of the things I think, you know, we don't do everything well, but but what we (laughs) try to do well is, is respect you know, the traditions, um, we're, we're trying to, you know, go back and, and make the wines the way that they were made 100 years ago mm-hmm. uh, from the same farmers, the same properties. You know, we, we want to be respectful of, of a tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst thing we could possibly do is 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 take Coburn's and make it taste like Graham's. I and mean, that's mm-hmm. never going to happen. Right. So. And we want that. We want the individual quality. And exactly. Stuff. It's more work, but it's, you know, you, you've, you've got to do it. You've got to preserve heritage. I mean, this is a heritage brand and mm-hmm. uh, hopefully consumers will, will recognize that and vote with their with their feet and their wallets. Rupert, thank you so much for, for being on the air with me today. I appreciate it. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Rupert Simmington, listen, he and his family have Simmington. It's a, a family of estates. And Simmington.com is the website to go to. But certainly, go into your fine retailer and look for one of their one of their brands. They have Grams, Dows, Coburns, and Quinta de Vesuvio, which I'm going to mess up again and again. But I will, of course, pop up links to those different wineries. And when you get to Portugal, and when you have the opportunity to do it, find out more about these great port houses because the reality is many of them you can visit in some way, shape, or form. They do have, like in the United States, tasting rooms in different places. So find out before you go, of course, because I wouldn't want you showing up and being like, oh, no, I couldn't. But Symington.com, that is the uh, the website to go to. And then ask your local retailer, ask your local sommelier. And if you can, at the end of a fabulous dinner, have a taste of a couple, do a flight, or get a couple of bottles to share with friends and family because what better way to enjoy something delicious than to share it with those you love i'm joel more food wine and travel next time don't forget to follow me at joel riddell on twitter and dining around on instagram all of that and more more food wine and travel next time